0: Hi, everybody. You're listening to the 19th episode of the HPP Podcast. I'm DeCarlo Calloway alongside Dorian. And on today's podcast, we fight a duel with a filibuster who appointed himself president. Why investing in free agents takes sound skill and strategy. We deal with an insurrection and not the one that you think. And we conclude with discussing cooking tips that will make anyone's cooking experience more organized and seamless. So we are going to start off today just like we do every single episode by showcasing the drinks that we are consuming as we are recording this. So Dorian, how are you doing today and what is it that you're drinking? You're actually
1: ca- catching me right as I'm making my drink and I forgot to bring my fancy little mixer. So I'm just going to stick my stink. <laughs> I'm going to stick my pinky in here to mix it around. Today I'm having and uh, hello, uh, De Carlo. It's good to see you. Today, I'm having a Roman Coke, classic, simple, lovely. It's a Flor de Caña Seven Year gra- uh, Gran Reserva from Chichigalpa, Nicaragua, which is just out- just outside of uh, Chinandega. Which those of you who've been listening for a while know that that's one of the team, one of the best, one of the uh, one of the teams that went to the uh, championship game of the Nicaraguan baseball league. And I'm mixing it with a uh, cola from uh, Whole Foods. And so today, let me take a quick drink of this because it's very, very good. This is, Flor de Caña is one of the best rums in the world. And it actually means flower of the cane because obviously rum comes from sugar cane. So today we're going to be talking about something that you should have learned, this amazing story from Nicaragua and from America. The man I'm going to be talking about is William Walker. Now, William Walker is, is a native of Nashville, Tennessee, home of a bourbon right? Yeah, Tennessee. Tennessee makes bourbon. No,
0: no, 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 no. no. Before anybody kills us, bourbon is from Kentucky, <laughs> okay? Right. From Bourbon County. <laughs> uh, wait, what do they make in Tennessee, then? Uh, whiskey. Jack Daniels.
1: Whiskey, Tennessee
0: right. whiskey. You know, there the you thing go. is, is that, you know, just anybody who's hardcore drinkers as, you know, you know, or not even hardcore drinkers, anybody who knows whiskey knows that bourbon, only Kentucky. Tennessee whiskey, even though it's distilled twice, Like, it's twice distilled in the same way that bourbon is. It's considered Tennessee whiskey. Single is scotch, because single malt is distilled once, and then Irish whiskey is distilled three times. So that's the whole dispute. But anyway, sorry. No,
1: thank you for setting us straight. I I promise you people I wasn't drinking before we started recording this. So – William Walker from Nashville, Tennessee. He was born in the springtime in the eight, on the 8th of May, back in 1824, 444. Four, four. He is Tennessee's most famous son. What about Peyton Manning? Wrong. Peyton Manning from Louisiana. Andrew Jackson? No, I'm saying William Walker is the most famous son of, of Tennessee. Anyway, this is my <laughs> Uh William Walker uh, was a highly intelligent man. He graduated from the University of Nashville at the age of 14 when the rest of us are dealing with uh, eruptions on our face, pimples, he was already a college graduate. Then he graduated from medical school from the University of Pennsylvania. So he's an Ivy leaguer at the age of 19 when you're still trying to, uh, you know, get some drinks when you're at college. He practiced law and medicine. And even before I get to my point, he had already fought three duels, three. Um, He obviously wasn't killed because he was alive, but he did get in, in one duel to Carlo, he got struck, quote, in the pantaloons, but not his uh, you know, uh, not in the place that you that you would want to get. Not hit. where his man manliness <laughs> was
0: hanging around. Exactly.
1: Like, so William Walker is actually famous for being a being a filibuster. And and I'm not talking about the United States Senate. A filibuster back in the 19th century was someone who worked for himself to overthrow and gain territory outside the United States. So that's the difference between being a filibuster and being a mercenary. If you're a mercenary, which are still around today, you get hired to go fight uh, in wars or battles for someone else. But a filibuster said, I'm fighting for myself. While William Walker was a man of his age, he was... uh, he wasn't going down the right path. Uh, he he what he what he initially did was he wanted to go outside the U.S. to create a slave state, and he originally wanted to do it in California. He wanted that he wanted to carve out a slave state to join the union to tip the balance of more slave states in the union than there were non-slave states. And he originally went down to Baja California. Nowadays, a lot of people go and take vacations down there. He was forced to retreat. On his, when he came back to the U.S., uh, the government put him on trial for violating the Neutrality Act of 1794. What in the world is the Neutrality Act? The Neutrality Act means that an American citizen cannot fight against another country that the United States is at peace with. The U.S. was at peace with, with Mexico, but homeboy decided to go and try to basically take, carve out territory from there. But he was acquitted in eight minutes. Insane. Fast forward to 1854. In, there's a civil war going on down in Nicaragua. The Conservative Party is fighting the Liberal Party. And in 1855, the Liberal Party invited William Walker to come down and help fight for them and tip the scales. And so he and 60 other quote colonists went down there and ultimately he helped them win control of the, of the country and specifically making uh, the, the beautiful colonial city of Granada in Nicaragua, the capital. And so he was after he set up fraudulent elections. And shockingly, he was appointed president at the age of 32 years old. This guy's he had he put his mind to all the wrong, all the wrong things. So again, wrong things. He becomes president. In 1850, in July of 1856, he immediately repeals the Nicaraguan law prohibiting slavery because he wants to have Nicaragua as part of the union. Imagine that, people. Nowadays, people still talk about, oh, Cuba should have been, part, should, have been should have been a state. But people don't remember, Southerners wanted Nicaragua to be part of the union well before the whole Cuban issue with uh, Teddy Roosevelt and the Spanish-American War. And uh, William Walker also made English the official language in Nicaragua. If that's not bad enough, this is when all hell breaks loose. We talked about a few episodes ago of the industrial titans of the 19th century in America. He decided to try to, t- to, try to go toe-to-toe with one of these industrial titans. And we're talking about men like Carnegie Mellon, John D. Rockefeller, Henry Flagler, and the original, the OG Carlo Cornelius Vanderbilt, the man who built all the damn railroads uh, when railroads were being built. Vanderbilt said, I want to build a canal across Nicaragua to cut down the shipping from San Francisco to New York for that. You had to go all the way around the southern tip of uh, South America. So Vanderbilt's associates wanted to screw him out of his business. And so they said, hey, William Walker, why don't you repossess all of Vanderbilt's assets and give it to us? Vanderbilt was not a man to be messed with. What, What did he do? You can imagine what he did. He then started giving financial and logistical support to Costa Rica, which is the country bordering south of Nicaragua. He was giving logistical and financial support to Honduras, the country to the north of Nicaragua, and El Salvador, and Guatemala, because he wanted to ruin William Walker and his ex-associates. And uh, that's exactly what he did. And uh, Walker eventually surrendered to the U.S. Navy because the Central American Army said, you have got to get out of here. So he left. You already know what happened. He went back to New York and he was put on trial again, again, for violating the Neutrality Act of 1794. Shockingly, DeCarlo, he was acquitted. Six months after his acquittal, he went back down to Nicaragua to start, I mean, he puts his energies and intellect in all the wrong places. William Walker went again six months later to try to start another battle in Nicaragua. The U.S. Navy again captured him and sent him back to the U.S. where he was put on trial again for violating the Neutrality Act of 1794, this time in New Orleans, Louisiana. home of Peyton Manning. And guess what? He was acquitted not once, not twice, third, three times, three times. This guy was a terrorist, and he's being acquitted all every single time. So... <laughs> We're almost to the end, people. This guy's absolutely insane, but it's definitely worth for you to check check out William Walker. So he wrote a book about his year of presidency in Nicaragua in 1860. This is uh, um, the United States was on, on the verge of civil war, as we all as, as we all know. So in 1860, British colonists in Bay in the Bay Islands, which are these beautiful islands in the Caribbean, but they're part of Honduras. British colonists invited William Walker to come help them fight off because they didn't want to be ruled by the Honduras, from the government of Honduras. And so William Walker being who he was, he's like, absolutely, I'm gonna go down there. And his real mission was to go help them out and then go back to Nicaragua. But this is when he fought with a tiger even more powerful than Cornelius Vanderbilt. He actually was arrested in, in Trujillo, Honduras, by the British Royal Navy, and the the officer who arrested him was com- was Commander uh, Noel Salmon. In these days, people, the nineteenth century, you did not mess with the British. If you messed with the British, they would take care of you real quick. If you didn't mess with them, they wouldn't mess with you. This was a man not to be messed with. Anyways, Commander uh, Salmon, he actually wrote. He actually wrote. He fought in the Indian Mutiny of 1857, and that's another story, but that was a big battle that the British Empire was fighting to put down in India, a mutiny, basically. The, the Indians wanted to throw off the yoke of the British Empire, but they couldn't do it. This man has had all the awards, all the, the, the medals that you want, and he—and Commander Salmon said, don't worry, we're going we're gonna to take you back to the U.S. The British knew exactly what was going to happen if, if they took him back to the U.S., Instead, nope, they handed him over to the the government of Honduras because William Walker was impeding on the economic and strategic interests of the British Empire. The British Empire of the Victorian age was ruled by ruthless men who did not play around. What happened? William Walker's arrested. The British Royal Navy hands him over to the government of Honduras. Immediately, the government of Honduras court-martialed him. And sentenced him to death by firing squad in September 1860. As people say nowadays, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. So I'm raising my Florida Gana with a splash of coke for the duels, the insanity of William Walker, and of course the British Royal Navy who put this man. In his place, in the ground where he deserved for all of his nonsense that he was stirring up in Mexico and Nicaragua, and also, of course, Cornelius Vanderbilt. So, cheers for the British Empire and Cornelius and Vanderbilt, ending the illegal ways of the filibuster, William Walker. Now, now that I'm done with that interesting tidbit, Carlo, what are you, what are you drinking as you listen to my insane ramblings of the night of 19th century Americas?
0: Uh- Ice tea, actually, really pretty simple. But it's really interesting that you, with uh, William Walker in terms of um, trying to spread slavery to Central America, because people don't, people hardly remember that the Confederacy's goal was to spread slavery beyond, all the way down throughout the Americas. And so it was really interesting that prior to even the, the secession of the Southern states, that this was an individual who was going down there really hard and trying to instill that institution within Central America and also knowing like when you think about the, um, the logistics of trying to create that waterway um, that would connect the Atlantic and Pacific to bypass having to circumnavigate all across South America pretty much hitting ice because at that tip and you know the tierra del fuego all the way down there you're not too far like you're hitting almost the antarctic circle so um you know all of those things coming around it's it's really interesting when you really see um historical trends and a lot of things that were really taking place prior that were setting up the stage for the ultimate you know confrontations that did take place but i did think it was really interesting how they um the british they knew that the americans weren't going to They weren't going to execute him because you have to also keep in mind the americans really didn't consider many of these other countries legitimate countries because they you know they spoke spanish um they might have had mezitos and and, you know more mixture of people who are running those governments or even just the populations of the people of course they really didn't view them as uh um contemporaries so you know, America has its ways, and of course, still has its ways when we think about the criminal justice system, about people and uh, the crimes that they commit, and sometimes how they just get slaps on the wrist. So. Yeah. But yeah.
1: Uh, w- wait, so what, what are you drinking? You said iced tea. Is it Lipton iced tea? Is it uh,
0: purple tea? I don't I have no idea. It's a mix. See, like one of the things I, I tend to do is uh, take an amalgamation of teas. This one is a mixture of ginger, apple, vanilla. And just kind of settle them because Diller you know and, I've never heard of that. Yeah, man. And you just okay. put them in like you, you seep them and then you let it cool for a little bit and just put them in like a, a container. Right. Still a little bit more water in it. Because for one, drinking juice and soda is not really something I like to do for the most part. I like water, but I also like the flavor of something. So being able to have teas and just, you know, create concoctions with whatever teas are in my cabinet at that given moment is really yeah, you know, it's a it's a good move. So That's That's what I'm drinking and it's refreshing and it's a really nice thing to have after, you know, a long day and just chilling in the evening. So cheers to you.
1: Cheers to you as well. And cheers to our listener, whether you decide to go filibusting Latin America, don't do that. Or filibusting on another planet. Uh, Share us what you're drinking while you're thinking of doing that stuff, doing those things tweet us a picture of whatever drink you're having uh, on our Twitter handle at HBP 4040. And remember to use the hashtag HBP drink. Now I advise all of you not when you're signing contracts, don't drink when you're trying to sign a contract with Cornelius Van- Vanderbilt. And don't drink when you're going to, when you're thinking about signing a contract with the New York Yankees. And Carlos is going to talk about t- to us about some of these uh, happenings in the world of baseball.
0: Oh, another little bit of uh, advice, don't sign a contract under the influence with individuals who don't drink. I mean, one of the tricks of uh, former President Trump was, you know, people would always think that he was like, big on substances, maybe the, but you know, that's under speculation, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. But when it comes to alcohol consumption, he'd ever drank. And that was a trick that he would use, take people out, get them really drunk, and then they just sign over what it is that they want. So always be on the up and up. But the chevaux blanc,
1: at, as they say in French, the chevaux blanc
0: yeah. for our French speakers. <laughs> so, looking at the Yankee, like free agency, for those who are paying attention to free agency within Major League Baseball right now, it's a little bit different territory this year because of COVID 19 and the financial um, implications that that's had on teams. Even though we know these are multi billion dollar corporations, they are always trying to make a buck and try to figure out ways to ensure that their product is uh, of the highest quality. So the Yankees were able to lock down DJ LeMayu for a six-year, $90 million contract. Um, thinking about how his first contract, it was a steal for them. It was $24 million over two years. And within that period, he averaged uh, three thirty-six batting average over these two seasons. So it definitely was worth the investment. Um, but by the end of this new contract, he's going to be 38 years old. And even though... We're all living better. Conditioning is, is better for people, like, for athletes and such. But you never really know how it's going to play out. We know and, – and especially when it comes to baseball and we think about their um, – the Major League Baseball Players Union is the best union in the league. Like, their contracts, when they sign them, is guaranteed. It's not like the NFL where your guaranteed money is your signing bonus and you just hope that you could, you know, play as many games throughout your contract to make that money up. Whatever they sign, they they gotta pay it out, and so he'll be 38, and you hope that he'll still be in good condition. But six years—that's that's that's, you know for for paying for somebody who's already in their 30s and is going to be in the late 30s at the end of their contract—is kind of a lot. Um, They structured the deal in a decent way to to keep the annual value to 15 million over six years because they want to keep themselves below the luxury tax threshold so anybody who knows major league baseball has a luxury tax which is almost like a salary cap to an extent but not technically but they definitely don't want to get hit with that the Yankees the Red Sox usually are the two teams who tend to always get hit with that but of course now they want to make sure that they don't but as a result of this they didn't really have much um flexibility in terms of the other moves that they have needed to make. They've lost Masahiro Tanaka um, in their rotation. And you also have to take into consideration that some of the other pitchers like Luis, Luis Severino, who was out all last season, he's, he's supposed to be coming back, but he's been injury prone during his time with the Yankees. So they um, traded uh, Adam, Adam, Autovino to the Red Sox, he made 9 million. So, you know, it's kind of a head scratching move. But to address their weaknesses in the rotation, they are making some high risk moves by, but could be high reward. And it's not too bad of investments. But when you're making low investments that are high risk and high reward, it's kind of those things that you just hope happen. You're not expending too much money, but at the same time, it is still money lost. So it's gonna hurt. And if within the case with baseball, if your pro- if your players are not on the field, you're going to be definitely losing. It's not going to make much sense. But they say they signed uh, Jameson Talon uh, from Pittsburgh, and they only got four. Pro- they had to give away four prospects for him, and Corey Clover, who signed a one year deal worth 11 million. Um, both Talon and Clover made seven starts in 2019 before injuries ended their season. Uh, Talon needed Tommy John surgery. And a line drive broke Clover's right forearm. So it's not just say like, oh, okay, he has like a, a hurt foot. These are injuries that impacted their throwing arms. The Tommy John surgery, yeah, some people can come back and be, you know, solid and others have gone by the wayside. And having a broken right forearm can be very devastating. Um. You know, Talon didn't pitch all last season, and Clover worked one e- inning for the uh, Texas Rangers before tearing a muscle in his shoulder. So, you know, you wanted – the Yankees were smart by signing Lemayhu. Le he, he's been consistent. Having a good second baseman who can hit um, for average, decent fielder, pop a few long balls, can get drive-in runs is a good move, but at the same time, when you are losing, you know, start you, when you're starting lineup. You, yeah, you have Garrett Cole, who's solid. You have Severino, but he's usually hurt. Um, you got to take. You got to wonder whether or not these these moves are going to be, um, you know, positive for them. But we shall see.
1: Yeah, you say you say the Yankees are smart. And I say they're cheap. I, I mean, come on, like really, you don't you can't pay the luxury tax. I think I forget what the 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 cap is this year. I don't know if it's like two hundred million. I don't remember. But the point is that people, if you don't know the luxury tax, it's The major league baseball sets an amount, 210. So major league baseball every year sets an amount that all of your players contracts should, can't, well, air quotes, can't go over uh, 210 million. And if it does, you get, you get charged. uh, I think depending on how much you go over the, that cap, 20 to 40 to 50% luxury tax. And I always think, you know, I got to think like a businessman is if I go and, I go 30 million I get it a superstar player and I get I go 30 million dollars over the the that line I may get taxed 40% but how much money am I am I getting back in playoff television merchandise uh having an extra what 8 10 12 games in the playoffs when you're charging a ridiculous amount of money every single seating and you're jacking up your disgusting uh domestic beer. I'm not going to say any specific names, but you already know what, the, what what who I'm talking about. starts with a B, ends with an UD. How much money are you making, like I said, in merchandise, television, stadiums, parking? Who cares about the luxury tax? But, you, but, That's what but I said. you can't
0: expect that same type of numbers coming in when, for one, we don't really even know if there's going to be a large influx of fans coming into the crowd, too. You there have will be. economic, like... You have an economy in tatters with a lot of people who aren't going to have discretionary funds to spend, to go to baseball games, to consume at the ballpark, to buy merchandise. I'm just saying like, I'm not saying it's not, they couldn't probably dish it out, but at the same time there comes a point when you need to be fiscally conservative. No,
1: no. Major league baseball is lucky that I don't have a billion dollars in my multiple bank accounts because I would buy the Atlanta Braves and I would spend like crazy and be in the world series every single year because what is Rob Manford, the the man who quote unquote runs baseball, the commissioner? That he hates baseball, but he unfortunately it's, it's his job. Not his, it's not his job to hate baseball. It's his job to be the commissioner. And he says, "Okay, sir, owner of the Atlanta Braves, you need to pay up fifty million dollars for your luxury tax." I'm gonna say, Rob, you work for me. I I'm not paying. What you're like, Rob? You're like the United Nations. You and what army is gonna come and take my fifty million dollars away from me? Whatever, no, I'm joking. But anyways, <laughs> uh, was we the reason De Carlo I looked at I, I can tell you with absolute confidence that there will be that that there will be fans in the stadium this year is because I looked into my magic eight ball. Which means, ladies and gentlemen, it is time, it is Miss Cleo time when we look into our Magic 8 ball to bestow upon you our weekly predictions. Last week last week we guessed who's gonna win the Super Bowl. This week we wanna know, I wanna know actually who the Super Bowl halftime show surprise guest will be, because we all know that that the, the artist known as the weekend is going to play the Super Bowl halftime show. But we've all watched the Super Bowl, whether we we like football or not. As, we, as you know, every single halftime show always has a special guest that they don't announce. Like the most famous one I remember is uh, Missy Elliott, she that was like, I don't remember, like five, six years ago. I think that was amazing. My prediction for Miss Cleo is that The weekend is the, the headliner. And I think they're going to bring in a more rock type of thing to balance it out. If you catch my drift, I think it's going to be Weezer. Carlo, who do you think is going to be the surprise guest for uh, this week, uh, this Sunday's Super Bowl halftime show?
0: Well, I would say, considering that if we see, and I know how you said for certain guests like Weezer, if let's let let's cut the BS, it's called to try to make it a little bit more inclusive for those who are in the Midwest. Um, I would say I'd call uh, bull on that because if you think about last year when you had J Lo and Shakira, my God, that was the best. That was amazing. A um, few years before Thumbs that. Up. I like, I like. Before that, you had Beyonce who went. No, before that, you had Bruno Mars. Oh, no, you had Maroon 5 with Big Boy from Outcast and Travis right. Scott. Um, balance, like,
1: you see, the balance.
0: Yeah, but The weekend, unless, I wouldn't say Weezer because there's no musical connection between those two acts. So if you're going to go. Not until some, Sunday. No, even still, it's going to completely throw it off. Weezer has, like, you're going to go from The weekend, who's more hip-hop, R&B, to Weezer, who's alternate rock? Like, come on, man. That's, that doesn't even make much... That, that seems... That's going to throw it off in a way that just doesn't make any sense. You're talking would, too
1: logical, my friend. I'm
0: joking. No, but I'm talking about musical artists. And, I, you know, as a musician myself, I can tell you that you're not going to sit back and throw off the funk. They're going to, if, if, so who's going to bring the
1: fuck? Who's going to bring the fuck?
0: Well, especially being that The Weeknd, it's been reported that he's spent $7 million of his own money on this production. So I would suggest, I would predict that Kendrick Lamar might make an appearance, considering that him and The Weeknd both collaborated on the Black Panther soundtrack, or even, I'm trying to think, maybe, or maybe even Rihanna. I wouldn't be surprised.
1: Okay, okay.
0: But not Weezer, so they, I'm sorry. Not not these that, hey, 1990s, hey. IEU, I look just like Buddy Holly. That's not happening. Hey,
1: they, you heard it here, folks. The surprise guest for the Super Bowl halftime show, according to Wah, is Weezer and according to your our favorite resident dj slash musician which is the same which is the same thing i don't anyway no it's not dj so, okay well
0: actually no it is it's funny let me not let me take that back because hip-hop heads would kill me because yes a dj when you it, it is a specific art and you do have to have musical chops and you know most djs are producers and you know now that um musical production is not just done in a studio with session players or a band it's actually a lot of it is through programming whether it be fruity loops or uh band lab or other like programs of that nature so yeah they're musicians
1: okay so i say weezer will be the special guest the surprise guest i'm sorry the special guest week the weekend is it's his show the surprise guest will be weezer and DeCarlo says that it's it will be kendrick lamar or maybe rihanna But,
0: yeah. We shall see. But anyway, while you guys are sitting back and thinking of the Super Bowl, our sponsor Zima wants to remind you that while you were enjoying the game and that moment of, like, passion that overtakes you while you see Patrick Mahomes completely overshadow Tom Brady and take a mantle as as the best quarterback in the NFL, that that heat might take you on. So drinking a nice cool Zima will bring that temperature down. It'll make you seem cool. And for the home-based Super Bowl parties with you, the people that you are living in your domicile that you currently domicile with, remember we are trying to maintain social distancing, fight fight off, you know, beat back the curve. Um, Zima wants to make sure that you enjoy that time. So just remember, while you're feeling hot and you need something to take you down a few degrees cooler down drink a zima remember zima a few degrees cooler and it's something different
1: (laughs) you know what else is something we went through something very recently to carlo the something the Kerfunkel, was uh, a certain how do you say uh a riot an insurrection back in january Uh, the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., but we're not here to talk about that. I want to talk about another riot slash kerfunkel slash insurrection called the NICA riots. I'm going to take you all the way back to January, but not January 2021. I'm going to take you back in the time machine in our segment, the Dewey Decimal System, a.k.a. Lost in History, 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 History. A certain week in January, the year five three two, about a thousand five hundred years ago, just last month, talking about the Byzantine Empire, one of the most powerful countries in the region, you might even say the world, located in modern day Turkey. The man who ruled, Emperor Justinian the First. Why were people in a commotion, in a in a connuption over? This certain week in January in 532 AD, because the emperor had just imposed new incredibly high taxes. People were not happy. He was fighting an unpopular war against the Persian Empire. People were not happy. And on top of that, he was also trying to reform the legal system of the Byzantine Empire. People were not happy. And specifically, the aristocracy was mad because they could no longer use obscure laws to to avoid unfavorable verdicts. God forbid the aristocracy lives by the same laws as everyone else. And for the first time, some of those incredibly high taxes had to be paid by the wealthiest citizens in the empire. God forbid the aristocracy has to pay taxes. So I'm gonna set the scene for you, the hippodrome. We all know the Circus Maximus in ancient Rome where the chariots, that was, that was the, the Wembley stadium. That was the Met Life. That was the the, the the sporting epicenter of Istanbul. Of not Istanbul, Constantinople, which is now called Istanbul. There were chariot races there all day, every single week. But that was the only place where you, as a common citizen, could actually express your political beliefs. You couldn't do it anywhere else but in this sporting event, and it was during the chariot races. And so. Now, we, we as sports fans, we cheer for our favorite basketball team, our favorite ice hockey team, our favorite baseball team. But back then, there was only two teams to cheer for, and they were called Demos, or as our special guest calls it. Demos. there you go. <laughs> so the two Deimos. were the greens and the blues. Because that was the name of the, of, the, of the shirt that they would wear, just like today. If you're a fan of the Miami Dolphins, you wear their aqua and blue. If you're a fan of the Chicago Cubs, you wear their blue and white. And uh, the the were like a hybrid political uh, and street gangs, kind of like the ultras in modern-day Italy, so, Italian soccer, or their hooligans in England, or even the inchas in Argentine soccer. So in between these races, because they had about 24, 26 uh, every time, you, as a crowd, would shout out political slogans or uh, demand. You would, you, you would, you would shout demands to the emperor because, he of course, the emperor just sitting was sitting in his palace, which was right next to and connected to the hippodrome. And there was always fiery passions in these chariot races because just 30 years earlier, there was a riot after an incredibly famous charioteer called Porfirios. He was a green charioteer, but he did the unthinkable. He switched over to the Blues. Imagine now, if you're a sports fan, you think of some of the biggest players leaving for a mortal enemy. And the two ones that I always think of is Luis Fiegel. When 20 years ago, he left Barcelona Football Club in Spain and he went over to their deadly rivals, and he was almost like killed when he went to go play in Barcelona. It was awful. And also in baseball, North American, you think of Johnny Damon, who used to play for the Boston Red Sox, and then he went to go play with the New York Yankees. That was like, what are you doing? You don't do that. So that, going to play for the, for the deadly rival team, people, is nothing new. They've been doing that for over a thousand years. Now, Emperor Justine, the first, he was, he was a diehard Blues supporter, because the Blues supported the aristocracy, the royal family, the you know, order, all that stuff. But uh, and after, and again, charioteers were the sporting icons. They could win an unbelievable amount of money, but they could also die easily during these chariot races. So it was a very sexy thing. Women loved charioteers because they were so masculine and they were so pr- uh, brave. They were the epitome of masculinity in, 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 in Constantinople. So again, here we go. January, the riots on the 10th of January the Greens and the Blues were fighting, shockingly. So the Imperial Guard said, enough of this nonsense. They go in, they break it up, and they arrest the ringleaders from the Blues supporters and the Green supporters, and they condemn everybody to death. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not modern-day America. There was no uh, rule of law. It was whatever the Emperor said, whatever the Imperial Guard said. A few days later, all these seven men were going to be hanged, and somehow two of the, the, the executioner botched it and two of the, of the seven actually ended up living. One of them was a green and one of them was a blue. Their supporters took, took them immediately from the executioners and then put them in a safe house. Not, it wasn't a safe house, it was a, it was a sanctuary, which was the church, which was a church. So the next time that there was chariot races on Tuesday, the 13th of January, both the blues and the greens were already pissed off at Justinian because he hadn't pardoned either one of them it's like it's been three days this is a, this is a, this is a, it's a sign from God that these two men should be spared but he he did nothing so in between the chariot races, they were shouting political slogans at him, basically telling him spare the lives of these two men, and Justinian was not having it because he was uh you know you just didn't want to do it. And so the word that they were using was Nika, 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 Nika is, is Greek for victory, conquer. But they weren't saying Nika blues, Nika green. They were saying Nika to the emperor as in we're going to conquer you. We're going to overthrow you. We're tired of your BS, of your taxes, fighting the Persians, this, that, and the other. At the end of the day, the entire crowd went to go attack the palace. The city didn't have a police force. There was they set fires to the entire city. The beautiful, if those of you know architecture and have traveled to Turkey, the Hagia Sophia, the original one. This crowd burned it to the ground. They were so furious at Justinian, and Justinian he was he was like, okay, I'm gonna leave. We're leaving. I, I'm 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 abdicating. I'm out of here. But I'm raising a, another glass because I just poured myself as I go on to the power of a woman who put the spine into the emperor, Empress Theodora. She said, you are not going anywhere. If we die, we die in our purple garbs because in ancient Rome, just like in ancient uh, Byzantine empire, purple was the color of royalty. If we die, we die in our robes. We don't die running away from people. So on Sunday, five days later, Justinian goes back to the hippodrome with a gospel in his hand, the gospels, which are the Bible in his hands. And he says, I'm sorry, no more taxes. I'm going to get rid of the corrupt people in the government. Uh, please, you know, stop rioting. They didn't give a damn. They didn't give a damn. The next day on Monday, the 19th of, of January, Justinian sent in his most popular eunuch, the Ministry of the Treasury. Um, what was his name? Narcissus. He went specifically to the blues section because remember, Justinian was a supporter of the blues. Narcissus went to the blues. He gave them gold coins and he said, "Remember, people, the emperor supports you, and the man that everyone wants to wants to be the new emperor, he's a green." And that's all he said. He left. Everyone was still in the hippodrome. The imperial guard blocked all the exits. They entered. And the emperor had didn't have to worry about the imperial guards because the imperial guards were men from Thrace, which is modern-day Greece, and the Goths, which are Germans. They had no allegiance to the blues, the greens, the purples, the pinks, the whites. They didn't give a damn. Their, their loyalty was to the emperor and the gold coins. Again, they're mercenaries. They weren't filibusters. They went in and they liquidated everybody. That's how the emperor Justinian I Dealt with an insurrection in the hippodrome. They killed over thirty thousand people who were doing this insurrection. It's un, it, its incredible to think about. Now that I'm not now I'm not comparing that to what happened in the United States in January 2021. But again, these are not things. These are not things that are new. Uh, so everyone was executed. It was uh, just blood everywhere. The, and the, and no, never again would anyone ever raise a finger against uh, the Emperor city in the first. So ladies and gentlemen, this is how the, the Byzantine Empire dealt with rebellious insurrection, insurrectioners perhaps. But if you decide to be an insurrectioner, bad things are probably going to happen to you. Or if you're part of the Imperial Guards who are hacking and killing these insurrectioners, either way, you get tired, you get hungry. And so that's when you need to ultimately go home and make some food for you, right?
0: Very interesting transition, man. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, yeah, uh, fighting battles or even uh, killing thirty thousand people definitely takes some uh, energy out of you. So, you definitely need to make sure you eat. So, if they, yeah, if they're but, they're going
1: against the crown, down with them.
0: Yes, but in our modern times, we 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 hope that your energy, or the things that are, make, or that are stimulating your appetite are not uh, massacring people. So when you do get in the kitchen, I just wanted to give you guys some unsolicited advice in terms of cooking tips that I was able to come across while reading the New York Times. So one thing is you always want to meast. Meaning setting up your seasoning and chopping up your veggies. These are the things that like sous chefs do. You want to make sure that you have all your ingredients set up because it's really easy to just, especially measured. When you're thinking about seasonings, if you're looking at a recipe, and for one, you definitely want to cook with the recipes. <laughs> That's another thing. If you're look, if your recipe calls for say like half a half a teaspoon, you want to make sure you have it measured out and they're set up because as you're cooking, the last thing you wanna do is jumping in your season, your your spice rack, grabbing it, then using your measuring cups when you have to add like four different things. So just having everything set up there for you so that you just drop it in as you need it, as you go along, makes the cooking process um, really seamless. Taste your food as you go. Um, I'm guilty of this sometimes when I'm cooking is I'm not tasting my food. I'll just sit back and just put everything in. And then I'm like here. And then, you know, I'm lucky. Most, most of the people I cook for tend to be satisfied, but still you want to make sure you taste your food. It, it makes Or it, they're
1: polite or they're just, they're just polite.
0: Yeah. Or they know that they're not going to get a decent meal for them again. <laughs> if they sit back and insult my cooking. So I'm joking. make sure that, uh, nah, but still just make sure you, you, you taste your food as you go along. Don't crowd your pans. You know, a lot of the time people might want to put too much in your pan to cook it all at once. Don't crowd it. If you have, if you're cooking a dish and it, it adds for a lot of like ingredients, just make sure that you do it in moderation. You don't want to overcrowd it because then you're going to have a disproportionate amount of food getting cooked and you might have some stuff that's cold, some stuff that's hot. The the flavors don't blend well. You have to remember cooking. It's like chemistry, like all your ingredients, it's chemical. You're putting them together. You're creating a concoction that has an end result that brings all these flavors together. Um, Don't be afraid to add salt. A lot of the time people are so put off by salt because of the idea that your food is going to be overly salty. Taste it. This is the point of tasting as you go along, but salt does add flavor. Not only that, especially iodized salt, it's good for your thyroid. So
1: I, I actually use the Himalayan pink salt. I actually don't use the white one.
0: Well, if you're going to use, like, Himalayan pink salt is good, but it doesn't have the high yeah. of So, yeah. like, so you're not getting the same impact. But so, but you, you want to mix it up. Like, Himalayan salt, especially, like, coarse salt like that is really good on your, like, meats. Like, if you're yeah. cooking steak, um, roast. lamb. Yeah, roast, things like oh, that. Delicious. Yeah. Um, read your recipes. Recipes are there to help you. And you will find that if you read the recipe thoroughly, your food will come out well. You, once you read it and once you've come, you know, you've gotten familiar with it, if you want to add some adulteration, this is just like anything, anything that's creative. A lot of the things human beings, we're not original. We just build on what's already been created. So if you want to use that opportunity after you've become like, after you familiar, so familiarize yourself with a recipe and you want to, you know, be a little bit more experimental, that's good. But make sure you read the recipe and always clean as you go. Last thing you want to be as a cook is you're cooking through stuff, and then your kitchen sink is full of dishes. During those moments, like if you throw like something, like throw a roast in the oven, and you've you know you had your meat on your um, on a board sitting out to get at room temperature, or you've had all the other stuff, just wash it up, just just clean as you go along, because then as you're done, the last thing you only have to worry about is the dishes that you've eaten off of, and then you just wash those then. So. Those are some tips in terms of cooking. I hope as you listen, that you will utilize them as you go along, because I know I will be cooking as soon as we finish recording this, because it is 6.55 on the East Coast, and I am hungry, so.
1: <laughs> you know, I agree, I agree with you. The, I agree with you with everything, but the two things are absolutely, is being prepared. Like, our, like you said, taking all your vegetables, chopping them up beforehand, taking your herbs and spices, but a pet peeve of mine is even when I'm not cooking, when I go, well, obviously now it's COVID, but if you were to go to someone else's house and they're cooking, no matter how good it is, they're just leaving everything, everything out on the counters and on the stove or in the oven. It's like, why can't you start putting stuff away? It makes, it gives me. Like, I, 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 it makes me want to, like, just help them to, like, put things away. You may not be able to wash everything, but at least start putting things away. And, like, I, I absolutely put things away as I'm – even if I don't wash it right then, I'm still preparing them to put in a dishwasher, soaking them, putting things away back in the cabinets in the fridge. So I absolutely agree with you. And I know that a lot of us like to cook with, with wine. Not just cooking with wine, but drinking wine as we do it. So who else loves to beg for food when we're cooking? Our pets. Our pets want our attention, our and love our food.
0: And our f- more, more than anything, it's the food. They want our attention <laughs> because we feed them.
1: And belly rubs. Or if if they're four-legged, or if they're, you know, they have wings it may be something else. Scratch them on the head. But feel free to tweet us a picture of your pet begging for food, or you're just feeding your, your pet, we'll be happy to retweet it. We love pets here on HBP, the four-legged ones, the three-legged ones, the two-legged ones, the centipede, the hundred-legged ones, or the ones with, with wings. Our, again, our Twitter handle is at HBP4040, and use the hashtag HBPets, HBPETS.
0: And that's a wrap, everybody. We want to thank you for listening again. Please subscribe to the podcast and provide us with a review. Good or bad, mostly good. Bad ones we'll read because we like, self, you know, constructive criticism. Good ones, of course, because then it allows us to know that we're doing what it is that we're doing well. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at HBP4040, and our drinks will be in the show notes. Join us next time for a brand new episode of HBP. Take care. Peace.